Well, I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, we're going to go over a little bit of a summary of where we've been thus far in our study of the new birth. We've only studied John 3, 1 through 8, and we are going to spend our time today elsewhere. We're not going to be in the Gospel of John, but we need John as our foundation for what we're going to look at. So John chapter 3, verse 1, there is this man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, ruler of the people. He's a ruler of the Jews. He's a part of the Sanhedrin. He is on the Supreme Court, if you will, of uh, the Jewish people. He comes to Jesus by night. He says to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. The signs that you are doing cannot be done by a mere man, by a mere mortal. So God has to be with you. God has to be in you. You are a special person, but that belief in his miracles is not saving belief, as we've seen from verses 23 through 25 in chapter 2. Jesus knew what was in man, and he was not entrusting himself to man because the belief that they had in his miracles was not saving belief. Jesus sees that, even in Nicodemus, and answers, verse 3, a question that he didn't really ask, and says to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, or literally born from above, God births him, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus says to him, how can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, can he? And Jesus answers, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That was a rephrasing of being born again. He was trying to clarify for Nicodemus what it meant to be born again. And he goes back to a passage in Ezekiel, which we looked at last week, to see the new covenant promise. In order to get to heaven, God must plant inside of you a new heart, take out your old heart of stone, give you a beating heart for him, and cleanse you. The water is the cleansing, the spirit is the new heart. You must be forgiven of your sins and cleansed of your sins, but forgiveness is not enough. Because if God just forgave you of your sins but didn't give you a new heart, you still would never want to turn to him and follow him. So God has to cleanse you of your sins and give you a new heart, which is the water cleansing, the spirit, new heart, new birth. That which is born of flesh is flesh. Verse 6, Nicodemus, even if somebody could be physically born again, that doesn't solve the problem because flesh can only produce flesh. If you want to spiritually enter the kingdom of heaven, you must spiritually be born from above. Do not be amazed, verse 7, that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, you hear the sound of it, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You can't control the wind, you can't control the Spirit, you can't tell the wind where to go, you can't tell the Spirit where to go. Nicodemus says in verse 9, how can these things be? In verse 10, Jesus answers and says, are you the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? You should know this from the Old Testament. Uh, in his allusion in verse 5 to the water and the Spirit, he's saying, this is a passage you should have understood but instead, what the Pharisees had done, and pretty much everybody had bought into their religion, what the Pharisees had done is say, if you keep these laws, if you live a good life, be a good person, you can enter into heaven. It's as if Nicodemus is asking a question in verse 2, what do I need to do to get to heaven? And Jesus answers verse 3, nothing. You can't do anything. This whole analogy, this whole imagery of the new birth is very simple. It's very straightforward. We add complexities to it that don't need to be there. All Nicodemus is asking is, how, what do I need to do to get to heaven? 
And all Jesus is saying is, how much did you contribute to your physical birth? What did you do to be born? You did nothing. God knit you together in your mother's womb. God made you, and then your mother birthed you. You did nothing. All you really added to the whole process is pain and suffering. That's it. You did absolutely nothing. So, too, you do absolutely nothing to contribute to your spiritual birth. In order to be saved and go to heaven, Jesus says, God must do the work in and through you. John Calvin wrote one of the best books on the character and nature of God that's ever been written in his Institutes of the Christian Religion. And he starts it with this sentence. He says, in the very first sentence in this enormous tome of work, he says, nearly all the wisdom we possess, that is to say true and sound wisdom, consists of two parts. So all true and sound wisdom consists of two parts. Number one, the knowledge of God, and number two, the knowledge of ourselves. In order to truly understand wisdom, we must know who God is, And we must know ourselves. Um, We tend to think that knowing ourselves is easier than knowing God. And there's a certain aspect that that's true. Um, There is a mystery to God. We know that there is a mystery to him. And so we know that it's difficult to comprehend him, to fully embrace him. We know that there are mysterious things about him. And I think in light of that, we look to ourselves and we say, but we are easy to understand. We know ourselves and ourselves are very easily identifiable, but we need to be reminded by John Calvin and ultimately by the passages we're going to look at this morning that it is just as challenging. It can be just as challenging to fully know ourselves and fully embrace the reality of who we are as it is to fully know and embrace the reality of who God is. To have a true knowledge of ourselves, we have to have a true knowledge of God and have a true knowledge of what he says about us. What does he say about us? Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9. The heart is deceitfully wicked above all things. It's desperately sick. Who can know it? Who can fully understand it? The answer is no human can fully understand the heart. God is the only one that can reveal the heart. So if you know your heart, if you understand your heart, you know it because God has revealed it to you. In other words, Jeremiah is saying through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we never fully get to the bottom of our sinfulness. If if our forgiveness were dependent upon our understanding of what we need to be forgiven of, we would never be forgiven. Um, We don't know our own depravity. We don't know our own sinfulness. But the Bible speaks to these issues, to our heart. Uh, The fact that we cannot fully know how sinful we are does not mean that we cannot know our sinfulness deeply and truly. And as we studied this passage in John 3... A question that keeps popping up is why? Why is the new birth the only way? Why does Jesus say, unless you are born again, you can't get to heaven? And you must be born again to get to heaven. Why is that the issue? Why is new birth the necessity? Why must we be born again? Can't there be another way? Look at all the religions in the world. There's other ways that they say that you can get to heaven. Just be a good person, be a moral person, have your karma, uh, the good out way the bad that you've done, work, work off and atone for yourself. There are so many different ways that people tend to say, I can get to God on my own, apart from the new birth. Is there another remedy? Why is this the only remedy given in Scripture? 
What I want to do this morning is take some time and I want to dive into that question and answer biblically why the new birth is necessary. Why there is no other way to be saved apart from the new birth, apart from God working in our hearts. I want to give you ten reasons why the new birth is a necessity and what happens apart from the new birth if you do not receive the new birth. And because these are wordy and because they have passages that go along with them, I'm going to put them up on the screen for you. Um, So as we go through these points, they're going to be up on the screen, so don't worry if you don't get a chance to write it down right off the bat. Um, You will have a chance to write them down as they come. Um, These ten points, by the way, are from an amazingly helpful little book called Finally Alive by John Piper. He goes through the new birth. It's a pretty short book. It's a very easy book to go through, but a very deep theological book, very helpful book. Um, As all of his books are online, they are free, uh, desiringgod.org. You can download any of his books in PDF format for free. And there are three chapters that he goes through detailing these reasons and the foundation behind why we must receive the new birth and why apart from the new birth we are doomed. So, reason number one. We're going to go through some of these quickly and some of them we'll take some more time on. Reason number one. Apart from the new birth, we are dead in trespasses and sins. We're going to move around to a number of different passages. So turn to Ephesians chapter 2. This is where we're going to start our journey this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. We looked at this a little bit last week, but I want to look at it with some more depth this morning. Apart from the new birth, we are dead in trespasses and sins. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1 and 2. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. We were dead. But we aren't dead physically. Because he says, in which you formerly walked, so we're dead men walking, we're dead but we're alive, we walk according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience. And, verse 3, among them we all too formerly lived, so we lived even though we were dead. So this isn't physical death, this is spiritual death. We are walking, we are following, we are living, but our spiritual being is dead. So clearly, we are not dead, spiritually dead, in the sense that we can't sin. We are spiritually alive in the fact that all we can do is sin, and that's why he categorizes it as death. So what does it mean to be spiritually dead? You can say it this way. We are dead in the sense that we cannot see Jesus, we can't comprehend his glory, and we cannot respond to him. You go up to a cadaver and poke it, it will not respond to you. That is how we are dead. We are unable to respond to Jesus. So apart from the new birth, we just lay lifeless in our spiritual state. Though we are alive physically, and though we are very much sinners spiritually, we are unresponsive to Jesus. So to be able to turn from sin and turn to Jesus, something has to happen. Namely, life has to be breathed into our bodies, and then we can do what we need to do. But apart from the new birth, that's impossible. We cannot turn to Jesus because we are dead. Number two, apart from the new birth, we are by nature children of wrath. This is verse 3 in chapter 2. 
Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lusts of our flesh, so we were very much alive, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature, by the very nature of who we are, children of wrath, even as the rest, even as the whole, even as everybody else is, we too join in with them as being children of wrath. That means, specifically, our problem is not in what we do. Uh, Our problem is who we are. Fundamentally, our nature, our character. This answers the question, why is it the new birth that has to happen? Why can't I just try harder and be better? Because your problem is not what you fundamentally do. Our problem is who we fundamentally are. My sin is not my greatest problem. My sin comes from my greatest problem, which is me, the fact that I am a sinner. My sin just simply flows out of my sin nature. We are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. Psalm chapter 51, verse 5, David says that in sin he was conceived. Um, Not that his parents were involved in some adulterous affair or anything. The fact is, in his very nature, when he was conceived, he was born, he was conceived with a sin nature. And he was born, he says, I was brought forth in iniquity. He was born with that sin nature. And this is very important because the fact that David says, I was a sinner in my mother's womb, is is incredibly instructive for us. Because Romans 9 says that God chose Jacob over Esau. You remember the section, two twins in their mother's womb. God chose Jacob, Esau, I have hated, Jacob I have loved. God chose Jacob, and it specifically says God chose them while they were in their mother's womb before they could do any right or anything wrong. So our doing is not our issue. Inside of our mother's womb, when we are conceived, we are sinners, even though we have never sinned. Um, That's why we sin once we get outside the womb. We sin because we are sinners. Inside of the womb, we have done neither good nor bad. But our nature, we are children of wrath. Our nature is... Uh, The wrath of God rests on us. It belongs to us. The the phrase children of wrath. The wrath of God belongs to us and uh, overwhelms us, even as a parent would belong to a child and overwhelm a child. So apart from the new birth, all we are is sinners in our nature, unable to respond to God. Number three, apart from the new birth, we love darkness and we hate the light. Turn to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. We'll go back there just for a little bit. We're going to get to this verse in probably two weeks. John chapter 3 verse 19. Apart from the new birth, we love darkness and we hate the light. John 3 verse 19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does, not, who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifest as having been wrought in God. We loved darkness rather than the light. A lot of people think that when we're born, we're kind of born in neutral. And we have the choice to respond. When we see light, when we see good, when we see glory, when we see righteousness, we say, I think I want to go that route. This verse, as the rest of the scriptures teach, 
that we are not neutral in choosing or not choosing. We can only choose the darkness. And we always spurn the light. Um, We are not neutral when it comes to light. We don't look at it and say, oh, I think God is glorious. Jesus is beautiful. His work is wonderful. And I think I want to be a part of that. We can't. We only love the darkness. We resist the light. And so, too, on the darkness aspect, we only embrace darkness and resist the light. Love and hate are active in an unregenerate heart. In a heart that has not received the new birth, you absolutely love things and you absolutely hate things. The problem is you hate what you're supposed to love and you love what you're supposed to hate. And you cannot fix yourself. You embrace that which you should abhor and you adore that which you should hate. Number four, apart from the new birth, our hearts are hard like stone. So we can not respond to God. We are by nature children of wrath. We are sinful to our core. We only love the darkness and we cannot love the light. And our hearts are hard like stone. This is number four. Ezekiel chapter 36 verse 26 is where we went last week with the new, the new covenant issue. That God says, I'm going to replace your heart of stone with a heart that is of flesh that beats for me. A dead heart with a heart that actually responds. An unresponsive heart of stone with a heart that actually does something. But turn to Ephesians chapter 4. I want you to see in Ephesians chapter 4 a very helpful passage on our unresponsive nature. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, This I say, and affirm together with the Lord, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles also walk in the futility of their mind. So the Gentiles, the pagans, this isn't just non-Jewish people. This is pagan people. This is people that do not love God. Unsaved, unregenerate people. What is going on in their hearts? Verse 18, They are darkened in their understanding. They are excluded from the life of God. So Nicodemus says, How do I enter into the kingdom of God? Well, this is how not to do it. If you're excluded from the life of God, you're not going to be able to get in. So why? It's because of the ignorance that is in them. Now, a lot of people stop there in their religious efforts. Well, I've got to figure out. I've got to be enlightened. My problem fundamentally is ignorance. So I have to be enlightened. And then once I know, then I can um, get to the place where I live out what I'm supposed to be doing. My problem is fundamentally ignorance. And that's why I need to go to church. That's why I need to do these things and live better. But that's not what Paul says. Ignorance is an issue, but ignorance is not your fundamental problem. You are ignorant, verse 18, because of the hardness of their heart. That's the bottom. The bottom is fundamentally our issue is a hard heart, an unresponsive heart of stone. Romans 1, verse 18 says it this way. We suppress the truth as unregenerate people. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Um, It's not that we don't know. We know. Ignorance isn't the the bottom problem. The bottom foundational problem is we reject it. We are hardened to it. We suppress it. We are resistant. Number five, apart from the new birth, we are unable to submit to God or to please him. Go to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, Paul is very clear about A heart that has not been made new. We are unable to submit to God and we are unable to please Him. 
Romans chapter 8, verse uh, 6. The mind that is set on the flesh is death, but the mind set on the spirit is life and peace. He's just going to contrast these two things. Why? Why is the mind set on the flesh death? Because the mind set on the flesh is hostile toward God, because it does not subject itself to the law of God, because it's not even able to do so. And those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So in our flesh, apart from God working in our hearts, this verse says we cannot please God. We are unable to subject ourselves to the law of God. It's impossible. So if you think about salvation, and we talked about this a little bit last week, um, the miracle of salvation is similar to the miracle of the raising of Lazarus. Jesus has to raise him from the dead, but Lazarus does have to do something. You and I do have to do things inside of salvation. We need to have faith. We need to believe. We need to repent. But those things are obviously things that would be pleasing to the Lord. Those, verse 8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Those things, repentance, faith, belief, those things obviously please God. So if you have had faith, if you do believe in God, if you have turned from sin, then you are doing things that are impossible to do with an unregenerate heart. God has given you the gift of regeneration if those things are habitual in nature in your life. So, if we're asking people, as we share the gospel, if we're asking people to believe in Jesus, but they have not received a new heart and a new birth, it's impossible for them to do that. It was impossible for you and for me to do that. We can't respond to God apart from him working first. He has to work in our hearts and in our lives. Verse 9, Paul says, However, you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. That's an allusion to what God does through His Spirit in the new birth. If the Spirit dwells in you, if He's replaced that stony heart with a heart that beats for Him, then He remains in you. If you receive the new birth, then you can absolutely please God. Number 6, Apart from the new birth, we are unable to accept the gospel. This is Ephesians chapter 4, verse 18, we already saw. We're excluded from the life of God because of something inside of us, namely not just our ignorance, but our hardness of heart, our callousness, our inability to choose God. But if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, just a book over here, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, it says this in a very helpful way. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. Paul writes, The natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. We talked about this in Family Bible Hour. He cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. He cannot understand them because they are of the Spirit. They are spiritual realities that he can't understand apart from the new birth. Natural, unregenerate man does not accept, verse 14, the things of the Spirit of God, cannot understand them, and they are foolishness to him. Now, the problem here in verse 14 is not that we are somehow intellectually inferior and we can't comprehend what's happening. We can totally comprehend it. We will only reject it as unregenerate people. We cannot accept it. We cannot receive it as good news So you go to share the gospel with somebody, you tell them there's good news. You are a sinner condemned to die for your sins, but Jesus paid the penalty for your sins. He bore the wrath of God in your place so you can go free, believe in him and follow him the rest of your days and you can go to heaven. 
They cannot believe that. They cannot accept that. They can totally understand it intellectually. It totally makes sense. It's a very simple reality. Somebody took your place. That's the, that's the reality. Believe in them taking your place. They live the life you and I need to live. They died the death you and I deserve. It's a one for one. And boom, he takes our place as our substitute. It's not that they can't understand it because it's too complex. It's that they understand it, but they reject it. Unregenerate people reject. And we know that experientially. We know that as unregenerate people, we rejected, we rejected, we rejected, we rejected. And then finally, God speaks to our heart. God creates a newness of life in us and we can receive. This is true spiritual inability. We cannot come to God on our own. It's impossible. Our love for sin is so strong that we cannot choose God apart from him working in our hearts. Number seven, apart from the new birth, we are unable to come to Christ or embrace him as Lord. Uh, just turn, since we're in 1 Corinthians, just turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We'll start there. We are unable to come to Christ or embrace him as Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 3. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. Um, This does not mean that an unregenerate person cannot say those words, Jesus is Lord. This is crucial, by the way, for all those passages like a Romans 10 that says, in order to be saved, you need to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. It's not just say the words. Um, Anybody can say the words. Uh, An unregenerate person can say the words. It's not about saying words. It's about living those words out. It's about responding to those words in a real way. Nobody can do that unless the Spirit has first given you life. The end of verse 3, except by the Holy Spirit. This is impossible except by the Spirit giving you newness of life. Therefore, again, if you say, not just with your mouth but with your life, Jesus is Lord, if you submit to him as Lord and Savior, as master of your life, then you see evidence of the new birth happening because nobody can submit to Jesus unless the Spirit breathes new life into you. That's similar to John chapter 6. Turn to John 6, verse 44. You know this verse. I just want to have your eyes see these verses. John chapter 6, verse 44. No one can come to me, this is Jesus speaking, unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And drop down to verse 65. For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him, gifted to him graciously from the Father. No one can go to the Father except if the Father first draws you. That's why we said the last couple of weeks, the first step in salvation is God calling, God electing, God choosing. And then the second step is the new birth, regeneration, And then the third step is going to be involved in justification, our faith to believe. These are all parts of salvation. But none of them can take place. None of the things that we do in response to God can take place if God doesn't first work in our hearts. God has to place a new heart in you that is able to have affections for him. Then you will turn and say, he's all I want and turn from your sin. You will be able to spiritually appraise how amazing Jesus is and how wretched your sin is. This is what Paul does in Philippians when he says, 
I have counted all things as lost in view of the surpassing worth, the amazing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. You cannot say that apart from Jesus working in your life, apart from the Spirit giving you the new birth. It's impossible for you to do that. You need to do that to be saved. You need to appraise spiritually what's happening, that Jesus is far better than anything this world has to offer, but you cannot do that apart from the Spirit working in your life. Number eight. Apart from the new birth, we are slaves to sin. Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, verse 17. We were once so entrenched, so in love with our sin that we couldn't leave it, we couldn't even kill it. We were slaves to it. And that's what Paul says in Romans six seventeen. But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin... You became obedient from the heart to the form of teaching to which you were committed. Having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. So the only way we could become obedient is not because of our obedience. It's because God frees us and then we obey. The only reason we can obey God is because he first frees us from the slave market of sin and of death. We were slaves to sin, unable to choose anything else. Sin was our master And it is an evil, wicked, destructive master. That's why Paul says, thanks be to God. Not thanks be to you. Praise the Lord, you did something. It's thanks be to God. The work that needed to be done in order for you to receive salvation had to be done by God and God alone. So thanks be to him for doing that work. Number nine. Apart from the new birth, we are slaves of Satan. We are slaves of Satan. We saw this in Ephesians chapter 2. We are um, slaves of the prince of the power of the air. But turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 2. This is a very impactful passage on our lives before Jesus saves us. We are slaves of sin and we are slaves of Satan. 2 Timothy chapter 2 verse 24. The Lord's slave, so not Sin's slave, you have now been bought by a better master, by a gracious master, must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may grant them repentance, so again, they can't repent on their own. God needs to grant repentance to them, leading to the knowledge of the truth, that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. So this isn't some uh, innocent, choiceless decision here. Oh, I'm a slave, but I have no choice in this. We have been held captive, and we do his will with all of our might. We love sin apart from Christ. And unless God grants to you the gift of regeneration, which will lead to repentance, then you cannot escape the snare of the devil. He holds you in his grasp, and he hates you. Um, All he wants to do is destroy you. And so we pray, God, grant repentance, grant salvation, grant regeneration. This doesn't mean, by the way, that every unsaved person is a devil worshiper. That's not what this means. Most unregenerate people don't even believe the devil exists. That's what it means. Uh, How much more of a devilish thing would it be for the devil who does exist 
to get into the minds and hearts of unregenerate people that he doesn't exist and that their lot is a perfectly acceptable one and that their destiny is secure in uh, happiness for, in paradise forevermore. Um, God is a God of truth and the devil is a devil of lies, a slanderer. That's exactly what he did with Adam and Eve in the garden. God's withholding pleasure from you. He didn't really say this. So we, as unregenerate people, are under the spell of sin and deception. But if God grants the new birth, if he grants repentance, and he grants that in such a way that it's a gift, it's not of our earning, then he, what he does is he shines a spotlight and he shows us who the devil is. He shows us what sin is. He shows us that they have been our master and he shows us that he is a much better master. Until he shines that spotlight in our lives, we are not able to choose him. But when he does, the truth sets us free. And we are made free by God's grace. Number ten. Finally, apart from the new birth, no good thing dwells within us. This is back in Romans 7. Romans chapter 7. Apart from the new birth, no good thing dwells inside of us. Now, as you're turning there, this statement doesn't even make sense to an unbelieving heart. This statement can't make sense because they will say, I'm a good person. I do good. I just help the little old lady cross the street. That's what I do. I'm a good person. And we would agree there is goodness in what you did, but it's not good in the sense that you love Jesus and you want to live for him because you're unable to do that. The actions and the deeds that unregenerate people do that are done, that are good, are never done with the desire to glorify Jesus. They're never done because God has first loved them, so they love others, 1 John. They never do it that way. They can't live for the glory of God, so every good thing they do is ultimately because of themselves. They never do it to show forth Jesus to a lost and dying world. John Piper says, Where people use all that God has made without relying on his grace, trying to be good without relying on the grace that he's given in order to be good, And they live without aiming to show his worth. They prostitute God's creation. They make it the instrument of unbelief and they ruin it. That's why Paul's going to say in Romans chapter 7 verse 18. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, but the doing of good is not. This is Paul clearly saying And I love the way he specifies it. In my flesh, not in his spirit, because his spirit has been regenerated. There is plenty of good in his new heart. But apart from the new heart, there's only bad. Apart from the new birth, no good thing dwells in us. That's the beginning of verse 18. Nothing good dwells in an unregenerate heart and in unregenerate flesh. It's impossible. That's why you need a new heart. And that's why he says, there's plenty of good in in my new heart. In my flesh, there's nothing good. There's nothing good. So those ten reasons, if we go back to John 3, when Jesus says to Nicodemus, in order to get to heaven, you must be born again. The reason why that's a necessity and why that's the only way, eternity hangs in the balance of this question, right? If there's another way, then first of all, Jesus died needlessly. But second of all, let's pursue another way. If there is another way in C.S. Lewis's formula, then Jesus is a liar. 
He's either a liar, a lunatic, or Lord. And if there is another way that we can be saved, then when Jesus says this is the only way, then he lied. We know that he didn't lie. He has never lied. Therefore, he has to be Lord. Apart from God working in us, the new birth, we are, as Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That's who we are without Christ, without the new birth happening. I just want to read that again. This is our hope apart from Jesus. We are separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, can't enter into the new birth or the new covenant, the new birth, strangers to the covenant of promise, having no hope and without God in this world. That is by very definition an insanely bleak outlook on life. We're hopeless. John 6, unless God draws you, you can't get there on your own. The only remedy is the new birth. Without the new birth, our condition is hopeless. We cannot fix it with moral improvement. Dead men can't do any better. They can't try harder. Dead men need one thing before anything else can happen in their hearts and in their lives. They must be made alive. They must be born again. That's the only way we can turn to Jesus and pursue him. We studied in Family Bible Hour over the summer, we studied hymns. We said they're writers. We looked at some biographies of these writers and their hymns. We, look, we looked at the theology inside of the hymns. We looked at the theology of the most famous hymn of all, Amazing Grace. We saw John Newton, an evil, wicked man that was an absolute God-hater, godless, no new birth, unregenerate, wicked to the core. And then God breathes life into him. The new birth happens. And when the new birth happens, you remember there was a section in his life where he looked at himself and he said, you know what, what I'm doing is not good. It's not good. But there was a period of about three years where he said, what I'm doing is not good. But he, looking back when he did get saved, he said, those three years I wasn't saved. I was just trying to be morally right, morally pure. I obviously saw this is wicked, this is evil, this is wrong. So I started trying harder to do better things. But it wasn't until God saved him. It wasn't until God gripped his heart that he came to Christ. That's why he writes the words, Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We go through a sermon like this, and we go through the Bible, and we see, again, we're looking what Calvin said at the beginning of the sermon, we need to know God and we need to know ourselves. Now, hopefully, Lord willing, we know ourselves a little bit better. One of the reasons why we don't like studying ourselves is ourselves are really bad. (laughs) This is a terrible outlook on life. We are hopeless. We are unable. We are unresponsive. There is no chance that we, on our own strength, can get to God. And we hate that. Um, Everything in this world says, if you just try hard, make up your mind, put your mind to it, put your effort into it, you can achieve anything. I don't think that's true even in this life. Um, But it's definitely not true with this. It's not true spiritually. You cannot work hard enough, try hard enough, believe hard enough, be better, and get God's favor. You can't. And we hate that as legalistic, prideful human beings. So how are we supposed to respond to this? Um, I would say, number one, we need to submit to the authority of God's Word. God's Word clearly speaks. It may not tell us things that we really enjoy, 
definitely doesn't tickle our ears. We don't leave today saying, I feel better about myself. Um, But if we don't say, I'm a wretch, then we won't say grace is amazing. It saves a wretch like me. If we don't say, I'm a wretch, then we're going to say, I needed a little bit of grace. But I could do the work on my own. Number two, I would say this. If, we, if you have received the new birth, you need to be exceedingly grateful and thankful. You did nothing to get God's attention. You did nothing to say, hey, pick me, pick me. And God graciously called you. And if you see evidences of grace in your life, then you need to thank him because it's not of you and it never will be of you. It's not of me. God picked me not because of me, but in spite of me. Number three, if you're here this morning and you don't know if the new birth has happened to you, you don't know if you see evidences. First of all, I would just plead with you, come talk to me, come talk to one of the other elders here. Come talk to us. Talk to your friends or your family members and just ask them, hey, do you see that the new birth has happened to me? Because if the new birth has not happened, you see you're in a hopeless situation. And that would be number four. What can you do? If you are here this morning and the new birth hasn't happened to you, or if you're here and it has, but you know somebody that it hasn't happened to, and you're saying, well, there's no power that I have in myself to make it happen, what do I do? You can ask. If you truly assess your own spiritual condition because of these passages, you can say, God, I need you. I can't do it on my own, so please work this in me. And Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. As you hear the word of God being preached, and as you can take that word to other people who don't know Jesus Christ, God uses this book, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God, God uses this book to breathe life into people. And as they see their need for a savior, as they see their sin, and they see the provision made in Jesus Christ, God can regenerate their heart, they can choose him. Miracles happen. But you can ask. You can say, God, I desperately want that. I need that. And without you doing that in my life, I am hopeless. So, in conclusion, I thought it would be appropriate to spend the remainder of our time thanking Jesus. I do believe that the majority of us have received the new birth, and it's not because of anything we have done. If you are saved, we we need to fall on our faces before the Lord and say thank you. We can't repay him. It was a debt we could never repay to begin with, and now it's definitely a debt we could never repay. Even the good works we do are done because of his grace in our lives to do it. So the goodness that we do doesn't pay him back. It's receiving even more grace that we owe even more. So we just need to say thank you. And if you are here this morning and you are not saved, or you are here this morning and you know somebody who's not saved, you can still respond the same way and say, thank you that there is a provision made for me. I want that to happen in my life today. God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for Jesus, the provision that was made on the cross, so that his spirit would be able to work in our lives and create in us new hearts that could see he truly is more glorious than anything this world has to offer. He is better by far than anything our sin, our pride, ourselves could ever find. And so we thank you for him. Your grace is amazing. Help us to understand the amazingness 
of it in light of the the wretchedness of our condition. God, thank you for loving us. We love you now, not because we loved you first, but because you first loved us and sent your son to graciously die for us. Receive our praise now from a heart that is humble, that is grateful. Why me? God, all we can say is thank you.